Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Stephanie Barron's popular Jane Austen mysteries feature the famous novelist as a crime investigator, and they're so close to real life that Stephanie sometimes hears Jane's voice in her head as she writes. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Stephanie talks about channeling Jane Austen, World War II espionage novels, and That Churchill Woman, her latest book about Sir Winston's controversial American mother controversial and highly talented, I might add. But before we get to Stephanie, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Stephanie's website and books, to any of the things that we talked about here today, as well as details about how to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Stephanie. Hello there, Stephanie, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jenny. Thanks for being interested in my work. Oh, I love your work. But look, tell me, and I'm sure your readers want to know, was there a once upon a time moment when you realized that you wanted to write fiction? And if so, what was the catalyst for it? Well, I think like many writers, I was born writing, (laughs) or at least I personally believe that each of us has particular way of processing our experience. You know, I can't draw a line. I mean, I'm pathetic at at anything visually artistic. I can't sing. I don't play an instrument. But words have always been my superpower. They're my way of processing everything that happens to me, making it comprehensible, and hopefully gleaning something from it that I can pass on to others. Uh, I firmly believe that we all use storytelling as a way to understand how to live. Uh, And that's why stories of every type are so critical for for children and for how we relate to one another and and simply get through what can be very difficult at times, just daily existence. Um, So I was always a writer. Uh, I think many of us who write grow up kind of just immersed in pen and paper, uh, and I was no exception. But in terms of practically deciding to sit down and write my first novel. Um, that took a leap of faith. And I think it's because I uh, I was raised in a family that valued education. Um, but I went to a university where <laughs> literature, and I mean literature, uh, was viewed as art. Um, and so I had a lot of inner inhibitions about testing my ability to write, even though I was a very facile writer um, from day one. Uh, and it kind of took walking into a mystery bookstore one day when I was 29 um, and looking around at the walls of shelves, floor to ceiling, and thinking to myself, you know, this is not simply art. This is not a God-given talent that you either possess or do not. This is also business. And entertainment can be pursued, perfected, launched, Uh, as a business. Writing can be entertainment. 
And so that made it kind of comprehensible for me, Jenny. It was something I could get my, my hands around then and not feel that I was risking art that might forever be judged a failure. So once I got writing down to the level of entertainment that I could apprentice at and, and perfect and sell, suddenly I could write a book. That's fantastic. I don't know if your experience was similar to mine, that also in those days, most of the literary gods were men. And there was a particular type of male writer who didn't really value women very much. And so there was quite a subtext there, more than a subtext, that women weren't really truly creative spirits in the way that men were. Yes, I think that's absolutely valid. And I I would note that my epiphany about mystery fiction coincided with um, phenomenal success for certain female mystery authors. People like Sue Grafton and Sarah Paretsky um, <clears throat> were simultaneous with my decision to, to attempt to write a mystery novel. Now, granted, I didn't simply pursue that genre because of those women, but um, they certainly gave me an example of people who weren't afraid to attempt careers in writing, and that was valuable to me. I pursued mystery writing specifically because it was a genre I had grown up reading and loved and uh, turned to for comfort as a reader. And I felt that if I were going to make an effort to write, you know, begin, middle, and end a manuscript, that it ought to be <laughs> as a trial balloon. Uh, in a genre that I actually love to read. And that's advice I always give to aspiring writers is to not ever write what you know, because that's boring, write what you want to learn about, but also start writing in a genre you love to read because you will have half consciously imbibed and internalized a lot of the structural parameters of that genre that you can then um, uh, access as you attempt to write your own version of, of a book. So you started on your Jane Austen mystery series. You do write general historical fiction as well, and we'll get onto some of that very quickly. But um, was was the Jane Austen series the first books that you actually published? No. So I write under two names. Mm. I write as Francine Matthews and Stephanie Barron. And under both names, I've written 28 novels over the past 26 years. Um, so my very first novel is Francine Matthews, which is, I should say, my first name and my married name. Stephanie Barron is my middle and maiden name. Aha. Uh, yeah. So I published my first novel as Francine Matthews and then started writing the Jane Austen mysteries about two years later. Um the first Jane Austen, which is Jane and the Unpleasantness at Scargrave Manor, I wrote as my third novel. However, a different editor and publishing house bought that book, then had published my Francine Matthews Mysteries, and they refused to cross-publicize. So I was told I had to publish the Jane Austen Mystery as a different person than Francine Matthews, which is why I now have two names. Uh, ironically, all of my books are now under one house, but um, at the time they were not. Yeah, yeah. And I saw mention online that it seemed that Jane Austen as as an identity was being rediscovered, that there was a certain uh, a serendipity for you. It was the late 90s and your 
Jane Austen series came out at the time that she was being rediscovered, but you didn't quite plan that. How did that all come about? You know, I was pregnant when I wrote my first Jane Austen mystery, and I I firmly believe the pregnancy is a a hallucinatory state. And I um, had been reading Jane, um, as I do every every year, um, usually in autumn here, because um, there's something very autumnal, I find, about her prose. It's laced often with regret and the desire for second chances and um, introspection, and I find that well-suited to winter weather. So I found that, uh, as I often do when I'm reading Jane, that her voice is in my head. And I really wanted to be able to use that voice, which is so replete with multiple meanings that, you know, she operates, particularly in her dialogue, on on multiple levels at once. And we live in an era of sound bites, which convey very little. Uh, so I thought, wow, if I could tap into the richness of that language, but use it in a way that the reader enjoys rather than feeling is is somehow inaccessible, which I do hear from people who are first reading Austen, um, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be a wonderful sort of merging of genres. Um, And so I sat down and I thought, well, I don't want to use her characters because I think like every reader, I'm very attached to my conception of Jane Austen's characters. I mean, I have an internal vision of who Lizzie Bennet is or Anne Elliot um, that I didn't want violated and I didn't want to violate for other people. So I thought, but, you know, Jane Austen herself is far more opaque in her characters. Um, people know less about her. And I had happened to major in college in European history, particularly the period that is the Regency in England and Napoleonic France, which was Jane Austen's period. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun to use her language, use her letters, use her life as the framework for a series of mystery novels, um, position different books in different places she lived, incorporate the characters she knew in her own life um, and the politics of the day. So that was my conception. It happened that I was pregnant in 1994 uh, with my first son, who's now 25. And um, it was the year that they were filming the Colin Firth and Jennifer Early um, Pride and Prejudice for the BBC, and they were also filming uh, Kieran Hines and Amanda Root's Persuasion. Um, Not to mention Emma um, Thompson's Sense and Sensibility, and they were all coming out at the same point. Um, And this was happening entirely unbeknownst to me because recollect this was pre-social network digital era and kind of information about productions and pop culture was disseminated a lot more slowly. Um, So they all kind of, my book and and those productions emerged at the same roughly period or within the same 18 months, I would say. Um, And that was quite nice for me, but unexpected. Fantastic, yes. And what sort of reaction did you get from Jane Austen fans? Were there a few who turned up their noses and said, this isn't real lit? Yes, uh, but they tended to be people who had not yet read the book oh, yes. <laughs> uh, or were British. I will say that um, uh, people in Britain tend to disparage American meddling with their sacred cows. And Jane is very much a sacred cow in England. Um, 
But uh, certainly in this country, I was welcomed with open arms by most Jainites. That's what we call, and I'm sure you do too, um, fans of Jane Austen. And I am a member of the Jane Austen Society of North America, and I have frequently spoken at their annual general meetings, and um, I was actually tapped as a traveling lecturer on Austen for the Jane Austen Society of North America. And so it's been a, a lovely um, community that I think has embraced the Austen murder mysteries simply because I try very hard to be authentic to the language of Austen's letters in particular, which are in the first person, of course, in a much more intimate voice than her novels, which were heavily edited um, and, and had that absolute hallmark of her era, the, the passive voice construction um, and the, uh, I think it's called, um, gosh, I'm forgetting the actual technical term, but it's dialogue that is related rather than actually heard. Um, and so, you know, it's been fun to mimic a lot of those techniques in Austin's writing and try to reproduce them in an authentic way. I think you've done the most amazing amount of research into her letters and journals. You can, you can see it in the books. Um, do you feel you almost know her life more closely than you do your own? Certain things about her life I feel very intimately um, grounded in, yes. But the, the tricky thing with Jane is that there are so many gaps in the known record of her life, which can be a double-edged sword. I have enjoyed exploiting gaps in her correspondence, for example, um, which exist for, for multiple reasons. But the two most obvious are, A, her sister Cassandra, to whom she most frequently wrote, had um, apparently destroyed parts of letters or entire letters uh, in the known record of, of Austin's life out of a sense of, um, mm, I guess, kindness or um, excessive propriety, a desire to protect people that Jane might have spoken of in her letters from knowing what she thought of them. So she, she, you know, kind of, she actually cut with her little embroidery scissors passages out of letters or she destroyed letters entirely. So those are missing. But also because Cassandra was the person to whom Jane wrote most uh, often, if they were together, there were no letters. So for periods, sometimes of, of a year, there are no letters um, extant you know, that describe Austin's life. And so those gaps are fun for me because I can fill them with fiction yeah, and sort of postulate about what might have happened. I can create adventures for Jane that there's no record of. However, I've also written a number of books, and I should say that I'm at work on the 14th of the Jane Austen mysteries right now. Mm -hmm. um, I have written a number of books that dovetail absolutely with the letters she wrote from a specific place um, and that I've incorporated into the novel. So she'll mention that there was moonlight one night, which meant they were able to go out, for example, because most people only traveled on nights or had social engagements on nights when there was at least a half moon or a full moon, hopefully that period, um, so that you could navigate dark roads in safety. Um, or she'll mention having attended a party and whom she saw there, with whom she played cards, with whom she danced. Um, 
she'll mention who was ill in the neighborhood that day, or she'll mention what she wore or uh, scads of things that, that Jane Austen referenced. And the way that we sort of in texting now are constantly relating to people what we're doing on a, on a moment by moment basis, she was doing in her letters because people wrote so much more uh, frequently and prolifically than we do mm-hmm. now. So there are wonderful primers for the period and events of the day and what she was reading, whether it's a newspaper or a novel, um, what she was wearing. Uh, and so it, it, all that richness of detail does creep into the books. Um, and in some instances, I took one of her letters from Lyme Regis, for example, where she later would set key passages of persuasion. Um, and I was able to use every single person she mentioned in the letter as a character in the novel. And one is the murderer and one is the victim, you know, so it's really been uh, a wonderful sort of found resource, her, her letters and uh, then again, her characters and her novels um, for anyone wanting to create a, an alternative world. Sounds wonderful. I mean, I think it's volume 12, book 12 is Jane and the 12 days of Christmas which is, yes, is quite um, topical for right now, for this time of year, if people wanted a little touch of Jane Austen at Christmas. And that's set at, with the Shute family at the Vine. And I wondered as I was reading it whether that was actually based on a real Christmas that she had in, in that place. Was that real or was that imagined, that one? Uh, it was imagined, definitely. I, I don't know that she ever would have spent Christmas with the Chutes. Um but they were close family friends mm-hmm. uh, of the Austin family. They had been very close neighbors when Jane was growing up. Um, her brother, James, who was also a clergyman like her father and took over her father's living in Steventon, Hampshire, used to hunt with uh, the master of the vine hunt. And the vine was the home that belonged to the Chutes. And Mr. Chute was the master of the vine hunt. So, you know, they were very interconnected, mm-hmm. and um, I felt it was a great family group and neighborhood in which to place the action of that novel. Great. And you mentioned about being a guide for the North America, Jane Austen. Does that mean that you take, you still do take tours of interested people to Jane Austen sites? No, it means that I am sent by the Austen Society to various chapters within the um, Jane Austen Society okay. yeah. uh, to speak to okay. them. yes, yeah. On various topics, usually of the chapters choosing. Good. Oh, lovely. And the other question that I must ask is, is Lord Harold a real person or um, an invention? Lord Harold Trowbridge, who figures in a number of the novels in the series, uh, is not a real person. He is a fictional character, um, but he's based sort of as an amalgam um, on several leading politicians of Jane Austen's day, Um, Whig politicians, Whigs being the more upper class but progressive group of politicians in Regency England who coalesced around the Prince of Wales, later the Regent, rather than... um, the Tories, who were more adherents of King George III and the king or monarchic executive power. So anyway, he figures as um, a progressive, a liberal. Um, he's also 
the second son of a duke, so he has inherent social power, um, but he is naturally a conniving sort of person um, who has multiple agendas operating at one time, and he is um, also engaged in espionage. And I, I created him because I had been reading various volumes of letters written by Whig politicians um, and using those as a resource. And I just thought that so much of the intrigues of the, of the day centering on the wars with um, Napoleon, but also with the United States, were rich material. And I wanted a person who could connect Jane to that world. And although she had five brothers, uh, well, she actually had six, one was in care um, and disabled, but she had five brothers who were in various aspects of, of public life in her era. She had two brothers who were naval captains, one who was a banker, one who was a landed um, member of the, the gentry, and the fifth was a clergyman. She had those male guides in an era that didn't afford women a lot of overt power um, into realms of Regency society that might otherwise have been closed to her. Um, but she didn't have one into government. And so I really felt that to place her squarely in the midst of the politics of the period, I needed um, a sidekick, and that became Lord Harold. Yeah, it's a great, he's a great character. Look, we, we, we could talk about Jane all day, but I do want to move on to talking about your historical fiction as well. And your, I think your most recent book is That Churchill Woman in, in that area. And it's a fascinating book centred around Sir Winston Churchill's mother, Jenny Churchill. Um, what made you decide to take on this huge project about a fascinating woman? Well, Jenny Jerome Churchill was an American woman, a very privileged daughter of a titan of the Gilded Age in America, the Gilded Age being roughly post-Civil War America or the 1870s um, up through World War I, which would have of course, been the Edwardian period in England. Um, it was a period that saw unlicensed, untrammeled capitalism in the United States, um, the growth of technologies, and the two taken together meant fortunes were made and lost on a very uh, titanic scale. Jenny grew up the child of privilege here in the U.S. Um, she was a product of New York wealth. Her father was a Wall Street speculator. And she grew up in Newport, Rhode Island, which is an era area of um, New England that is known for its glorious uh, homes that rival the mansions of royalty. Um, and she also grew up in Paris right after the um, Prussian invasion of France in 1871. So she had a really interesting and storied childhood, but she she ended up going down in history for having given birth to Winston Churchill. I just found it fascinating when I was re researching Churchill for other books I've written, which are uh, World War II espionage novels, that he revered his mother and credited her with so much influence in his upbringing, character, and um, destiny. And yet most biographers of Churchill dismiss her in ways that are 
Well, they range from disparaging to um, truly contemptible, I think, in the, the language they use to dismiss Jenny Jerome Churchill. And that has at its root several things, namely, a lot of Churchill's biographers are, are both male and British, and they really hate the fact that sort of the, the, the cherished son of, of British destiny, Winston Churchill, the man who saved not only England, but arguably Europe from the Nazis, was in fact only half British. You know, yeah. it's really hard for them to accept that, that Churchill is half American. Um, and being male, they tended to dismiss um, Jenny because, as an influence on Churchill because she is someone that they regarded as frivolous, as um, selfish, as a bad mother, as uh, profligate financially, um, and ultimately as sexually licentious. She was someone who lived very much by her own rules. She was married to a man who may have been homosexual and certainly, I think, had syphilis. Um, and so her marriage was unhappy and um, she refused to stop living because of it. So uh, she's an interesting, complex and um, provocative figure that history has not necessarily agreed upon, but that I found to be a fascinating subject for exploration in a novel. Yes, you certainly get the feeling. The book finishes, more, well, more or less finishes at the end of her marriage to Lord Randolph Churchill. It does, it does make reference to two subsequent marriages, but you get the feeling that Winston was really the focus of her life, and as well, in, in a way that he was the man in her life. Would would you feel that that was a fair thing to say? Absolutely. Uh, until the advent of Clementine in his life, she was the only woman in his life as well, you know, yeah, arguably. Yeah. They were, um, she had Winston when she was 20. And so having a, a young at heart approach to life, she never seemed too much older than he did once he reached his teens and, and 20s himself. And so he used to refer to her more as the companion that a sister might have been, uh, as opposed to, the authority that a mother could have could have exerted. Um, so I think they were great companions in arms. She was ferociously engaged in politics and loved campaigning, and she embarked on that. I had this wonderful moment where I was, um, I, I did a variety of blog posts prior to the book's publication. I did, I called it 100 Days of Jenny, and you can find those blogs on my website. Um, but the posts centered on stuff that didn't make it into the book. And uh, for one of them, I was writing about Winston's first campaign for parliament, which um, occurred around 1899. Uh, he was about 24. And I just happened to, to Google Churchill parliament, 1899. And up comes a photograph, an image of him standing in his characteristic way, even though he was only 24, with his arms on his waist, his hands on his waist, rather. And uh, he's standing on the hustings, the, the campaign platform, and someone is helping a woman up the stairs to join him on the platform. And I looked at it, and it was so clearly Jenny, but she's not listed in the picture. 
caption um, because she was just a woman, right? But she was the only woman in a sea of working class men, because only men could vote in 1899, um, in Manchester, in a part of the town that is clearly uh, not genteel. Um, and of course, campaigns were characterized by massive vote vying through offering alcohol to the voters. And so it would have been a very rowdy crowd of working class men. And she was beloved by that constituency She because she had always campaigned for Winston's father. Uh, similarly, often in, in the absence completely of Winston's father, she was his campaigner. Um, so it's a, it's a great sort of in the trenches image of the two of them that I really cherish and didn't know to look for because it doesn't list her on the uh, photograph credit. You can see why a woman like that would, the men of the time, particularly men in power, just wouldn't know what to make of her. Exactly. She was extremely articulate. Uh, Winston gets a lot of his verbal ability from her, I would say. Um, there's some suggestion she wrote her husband Randolph's speeches. He was known as a fiery orator as well. Um, she wrote her memoirs, and they're highly creative memoirs <laughs> because she leads certain key events and embroiders others. Um, so, you know, when you see Winston as writer, which of course he was his entire life, that's very much Jenny. Um, she was also a visual artist. She was known for the portraits she painted, and she passed on her love of painting to her son. And finally, she was a concert-level pianist uh, who studied as a child with um, a disciple of Chopin's. So she was a multi-talented, quite brilliant, and complex person. And um, people like that are formative on, uh, with regard to everyone that they encounter, but certainly their children. Mm, yes, yeah. You've mentioned your... Um, crime mystery trilogy. I think it's the Nantucket, Nantucket trilogy, isn't it? The Second World War One. There's a variety of books, Jenny. There's um, six novels set on Nantucket Island, which are murder mysteries. Oh, right. Yes, sorry, yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually the sixth one is forthcoming, so there's no reason you'd have known about that. It's out in May. And then you you've got um, a JFK one too. There's a series. Is there a a, a Europe series, with one of which features JFK? Yes. So I also, I, I'm a former intelligence analyst with the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency in the United States. Uh -huh. And um, I've always had a, an enduring interest in espionage fiction. And so I have written actually six standalone novels that are uh, spy novels, espionage novels, um, and three of those are set during World War II. So that is um, a period that I love almost as much as the Regency, I would say. Um, my father was a World War II vet. And um, growing up in my family, we carried the knowledge of the war and, and actually a, a sense of its immediacy <laughs> way, way beyond when most people would I think um, I think it's increasingly being viewed as ancient history because it's the last century now, but um, it's very fresh in my sensibility and it it's a, a period of time that I love to research. Um, so I've written three books set in that period. Others are more contemporary. 
uh, spy novels, but those three are called The Alibi Club, which is about, oh, the last three weeks before the Germans marched into Paris in June 1940. Um, Jack 1939, which is very near and dear to my heart. It's about Jack Kennedy when he was 21 years old and was um, about to go into his senior year at Harvard. He took off six months, the spring of his junior year, and traveled alone from London to Moscow and everywhere in between, um, researching his senior thesis for Harvard. And that period of time is kind of lost to history. Most people don't even know what he was doing when he was a junior in college, as why should they? But um, I sort of stumbled on the fact that he had done this, and I thought, wow, what a great template for a novel, because we had no intelligence service in the United States in 1939. And FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, knew war was coming. He was running for his third term of office, which was highly unusual anyway. He's the only U.S. president that has served more than two terms. And um, he kind of relied on people he knew. It was the six degrees of separation thing that he would employ friends on the ground, different places, to give him intelligence he couldn't get through a formal apparatus. Uh, and he certainly knew Jack Kennedy. Jack's father was the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain at the time. And he also knew most of Jack's professors at Harvard. They were members of his kitchen cabinet, as it was called, informal advisors that Roosevelt relied on for um, expertise when he lacked it in his formal government. So anyway, I connect a young guy who will eventually be a democratic president of the United States with a mentor who is during World War II, a president of the United States. Um, and I linked them deliberately by disability. So Roosevelt was a president who served in a wheelchair. He was paralyzed from the waist down, um, but he was possibly the most formidable force in the executive office in the United States in the last 150 years. And Jack was ill his whole life, which is something most people didn't really understand when he was running for office later or when he was young. But he would tell everyone he met, I'm going to die before I'm 30. Um, and as a result, he had a very vivid compulsion to live every day. It made him a risk taker. It made his regrets few. Uh, and it pushed him to the edge of every experience, which makes for a great character. Sounds wonderful. I think I'll have to get that to put, read next. <laughs> I love it. It's one I recommend to a lot of readers, particularly male readers, because the Austin books tend to draw mostly women yeah. readers. Yeah. Um, and so when I do have people who read both both my Matthews books and my Barron books, but um, and I should say Jack 1939 is a Francine Matthews book. Yes. Uh, yeah, but um, it is it is one I can recommend universally, which is nice. Slightly confusingly, Jenny Churchill, though, it seems to have come out under Stephanie Barron when you'd half expect it would be a Francine Matthews. Because of the historical, I, um, I put it out as Barron because it's not an espionage novel and it's, um, okay. yes. it's one I thought would appeal more to women. Yes, I think you're probably right there, yeah. 
Look, it's it's fascinating talking about the books, but let's move on and just talk a little bit about your wider career. Is there one thing you've done, perhaps more than any other, that you'd credit to your success as a novelist? Hmm. You know, uh, when I was younger, I worked in college and then afterwards professionally as a news reporter. This was between the time that I joined the CIA, where I spent four years, and later began writing fiction. Um, So I credit journalism with a lot of my success as a writer simply because it taught me two things, how to write under deadline pressure, (laughs) which is really important, and secondly, how to write in the midst of distraction. Um, I have been writing my whole life while raising children, while, you know, being engaged with the broader world. And when people run into a professional writer, they often say, how do you actually get anything done? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you force yourself to sit down and write? Um, and the training I had as a journalist kind of answers that question for me. It, it's, it accustoms you to sitting down in a crowded newsroom surrounded by other people who are on the phone or clacking away at their own stories uh, or talking um, or arguing. And you acquire the habit of simply focusing on your own bit of prose, despite the world in chaos around you. And I think that that training is invaluable. It also, thirdly, I should add, uh, conditioned me to be edited. And I rely heavily on the dialogue that I have with an editor I trust about the shape of the story, how it can be improved, where it goes wrong, <coughs> and how best to polish it. Uh, and I, there are very few people I trust with that power over my work, but I find it invaluable Uh, And without it, I would probably be less confident in the ultimate product I'm I'm offering to the world. Uh, And I do encounter writers who resent editing. And I think that that's so short-sighted. To me, it's all in service to a better product uh, when you engage with an editor who's who's, um, qualified to comment on your work. So do you do do you still use developmental editors even after all these books? No, not at all. I never have. Uh, no. I I had one uh, editor in particular for 21 of my novels and I valued her enormously. She edited the Jenny Churchill book. She edited um, my, many of the Jane Austen novels. Um, and when I say someone you trust, it's because you have spent years back and forth with them in a, in a mental dialogue that is very hard to um, find just anywhere. I, I think that true editors are as much in love with, your, with the prose and the storytelling as you are as a writer. Um, and for them, the book is a living thing that you are sort of raising between you. <laughs> it's your mutual child. And um, those people are worth their weight in gold. It's wonderful. Look, turning to Stephanie as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading and we're starting to come to the end of our time together. You obviously do a huge amount of reading for your research. What do you read for your own pleasure? I do read murder mysteries, I have to say. 
Um, they tend to be, oddly enough, golden age mysteries. Um, I, I cut my teeth growing up on Dorothy Sayers, Marjorie Allingham, and Niall Marsh, as well as Agatha Christie, of course. Um, and I do love those women and their writing. Um, I also loved, for years, the Nelson's Navy-based novels of Patrick O'Brien, um, the Aubrey Maturin novels, as they're called, which recreate for me the life that Jane Austen's sea captains must have known. Uh, I obviously read Austen in excess. Uh, I also love her, her, what would I call it, great-great-granddaughter, Georgette Hare, who wrote wonderful 20th century um, novels that could be Austen-esque uh, set in the Regency. Um, as far as contemporary writers go, I love um, uh, Deborah Crombie, who is a mystery author with a series set in England. Uh, I love Jane Harper, who writes about Australia in the crime novel genre. Um, and I love a couple of spy novelists, since we were talking about spy fiction. A man named Joe Cannon, um, who's written extensively in the World War II period and post-World War II. Um, and Robert Harris, who ranges all over the map in terms of his periods of history that he loves, but always manages to produce a suspenseful novel. Yeah, yeah. Look, that's great. At this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything you'd change? Hmm. The advent of Amazon. <laughs> uh, gee, no, that's not helpful. I suppose in, in the 26 years I've been writing, Jenny, that what I have observed most forcibly is less about my own writing or progression than it has been about the changes in the publishing mm. industry, which mm -hmm. is what I was really touching yeah. on. You know, I, I came out in a period when books were books and um, people read and they read newspapers and they read magazines as well. And um, all of them were vehicles for spreading information. And increasingly that's not the case. So I feel like someone who was an opera composer yeah. <laughs> at the period when the Beatles were starting. I mean, there's just sort of a, a sense of being less and less relevant to mainstream culture. Um, and I say that even though my son, the 25 year old one in this case, um, has said to me, mom, the world will always need content providers. And lucky you, you're a content provider. Um, I had never aspired to be a content provider, but that appears to be what I am now. So, you know, you, you kind of have to come to terms with the changing value placed on your contribution to life. Um, and, and there's nothing I can do to change that. So that's not really a helpful answer to your question, I suppose. That's just progress. Yes, it's, I, I'm sure that he's right in that sense of you're a content provider, but it's finding the way to get it into the right channels, isn't it, these days? It's, mm. Yes, it is. Mm. And, you know, I am not someone who disparages different formats. I personally read uh, digitally all the time on my iPad. Mm. I love I love audiobooks and I listen to them while I'm, I, I happen to be an avid needle pointer. And so I listen to audio while I'm needle pointing. 
because then I feel less guilty about doing either (laughs) if I'm I'm multitasking. Um, And so, you know, I I love formats that that vary. And I think reaching people visually is hugely important. Um, I've always been an advocate for great visual entertainment, whether it's streaming television or phenomenal movies. So I don't really have any argument with that. It's more the uh, diminishing number of outlets Mm-hmm. through which people yeah. access yeah. their information yeah. Yeah. is sometimes disturbing to yeah. me. Yeah. The loss of bookstores being a major yes. one. Yeah. Yeah. And newspapers. I, I mourn the death of newspapers perhaps because I was a print journalist. Yes. Um, so. Yeah. I, I, I fully understand where you're coming from there. But what is next for Stephanie the writer? What are you working on over the next 12 months, for example? Over the next 12 months, that's a taller order. Uh, At the moment, I am writing the the 14th Jane Austen mystery, which is called Jane and the Year Without a Summer. It's set in 1816, which is only a year before Jane Austen's death. So I am running out of Jane. I am also writing the seventh Meredith Folger Nantucket mystery, which um, we didn't really touch on, but that's, that's one of my mystery series that I keep going back to. Um, and finally, I'm researching and preparing to work on um, a standalone novel. And I'm not sure whether it's a Matthews or a Barron novel, and it, it's probably a World War II espionage book, and I won't say any more about that right now. Okay. Um, the Nantucket Mysteries, are they contemporary? They are contemporary. They feature a female police detective who is named Mary Folger. She um, is a third-generation cop on Nantucket Island. And for some of your listeners who are less familiar with the United States, I would simply say that Nantucket is a a very wealthy enclave off the coast of New England that is a charming small village in its own right. Could be it could be Miss Marple's village of St. Mary Mead. Um, it's thirty miles out at sea. It's the historical home of the American whaling industry and um, from, from the federal and colonial period of the United States. And as such, it's, um, it's an historical gem in our country. But it's also uh, a venue for enormous wealth and celebrity. And so there's a conflict between the people who make the island run, the teachers, the firemen, the the police women, um, and those who fly in periodically with entire staffs to one of their six homes and enjoy the beauty of the place in a sort of more parasitic way. And I think that that clash of cultures always makes for conflict. Mm. And then, you know, conflict is where we get the potential for crime. So it's been a fun place to set a mystery series. Didn't the Kennedys summer there? The Kennedys... um, Summer nearby on Cape Cod, on Cape Cod and okay. Martha's and Martha's Vineyard. And yes, you are correct. Some of the Kennedy descendants um, have found their way to Nantucket, but um, in the main, they're still pretty fixed on um, Martha's uh, Cape, Cape Cod in a town called Hyannisport. All oh, right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, just moving into this new digital age. Do you like to interact with your readers online? And if so, where can they find you? Actually, that has been a godsend because I'll tell you the truth, Jenny, I'm a really lousy correspondent. If you write a letter to me, I tend to lose it. I I take forever to answer it. And by the time I do, you've forgotten who I am. So I'm pretty 
pathetic in the truly written letter format, but I always answer any email I get and uh, I respond to comments. I am on Facebook. I have a website, which is my name, both of my names. If you plug in either name, you can reach my website, which has, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of blog posts that offer background to the books I've written. Um, And finally, I am on Twitter, uh, very politically, not much about anything else, and um, which can be off-putting to some people, and uh, Instagram, which I love. I'm a huge fan of Instagram because it's the nicest place in the social network world. It's, it's all people who have beautiful pictures of their dogs, their food, their art, their book covers, uh, their clothing. It's, it's just a visual feast without any nastiness that I've yet encountered. So that's one of my comforting uh, outlets that I, I like to post on and, and follow. That's wonderful. And look, we'll, for all anyone who is listening, we'll have links so that you'll be easily able to connect through and follow up on those. That is wonderful. Look, thank you so much for your time. I honestly feel I could talk to you all day, but obviously we can't do that. But it's been wonderful having the chance to just get a little insight into your world. Oh, thank you, Jenny. I so appreciate you being interested and having this conversation with me. It was utterly delightful. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Happy reading. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.